right, all right. Let's go ahead and get started. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me today. Welcome to another episode of the Politics Band Podcast. And uh, I'm going to be back doing some solo action today. But for those of you who might have uh, really enjoyed the time that uh, I spent with my buddy Blair in our last episode in episode 11, I'm happy to say that he will most likely be back. We had a really great time. It was a super long episode of probably a little over three hours. So that was um, was a lot to talk about, a lot to cover. And uh, he contacted me just a few days after that episode had actually posted and mentioned to me that he had a really good time and he wanted to do another podcast as soon as possible. So I was definitely very energized to, to hear that from him. Hope everybody had a really great Thanksgiving week and uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Thanksgiving is most definitely one of my favorite holidays of the year. I'm not a real huge Christmas fan, and I know that might kind of come across as a little bizarre to some people, but the side note on Christmas is I find Christmas because of, well, I don't, I'm not saying so much of the commercialization of Christmas. I know some folks really get hung up on that. The part of Christmas that tends to irk me the most is I just kind of find that there's a lot of guilt around Christmas time. I'm the kind of person who, I'm a hard person to buy gifts for because I, you know, I, I do pretty decent for myself and I can usually buy the things that I want and for the most part do the same things that I want to do without uh, necessarily having to wait for the holidays for that opportunity. So needless to say, Christmas tends to be a time of year where I tend to feel really guilty because, you know, I want to have the opportunity to do gifts for other people, but sometimes I kind of exhaust myself financially and I always have other financial goals. I know like right now I'm looking at buying a house within the next year. And so, you know, trying to make all those things happen and somehow, you know, trying to deal with the pressures of Christmas and not so much that anybody really makes me feel obligated to buy anything, but it's just one of those holidays that I find a little stressful. Thanksgiving, on the other hand, um, is, is very, very different. I feel like it's, it's like Christmas without the gifts, which is something that I really like, but The bottom line is Thanksgiving is something, it's all about gratitude. And I believe strongly that gratitude is the secret to happiness. And that uh, if you have gratitude about your life, if you're thankful for the people that you have in your life, if you're thankful for the circumstances that are present in your life, that you find happiness comes a lot better. And I know that can be tough for some people. There are some of you out there that are probably facing financial difficulties probably facing medical ailments, uh, maybe facing, you know, a death in the family, uh, a loss of a relationship with a loved one. There's all sorts of problems that everybody has. And those problems are always fraught with difficulty. And, you know, sometimes we have a hard way of seeing ourselves out of them. And by the time you get to Thanksgiving, it can be, well, it can be hard. It can be hard to have a large amount of gratitude for all the things that have happened to you over the course of the year, especially for all the bad stuff. And um, I think that's why I love Thanksgiving so much because years ago, you know, I understood that the things that happened to me, even the bad stuff, that it made me who I was. You know, it it taught me life lessons. It showed me who I was, you know, character-wise. And it helped kind of prepare me for a lot of other aspects of life. And so even for the awful things that have happened to me in my life, I'm always eternally grateful. It's, you can be grateful for those negative experiences, but not 
necessarily be happy that they happened in the sense of, you know, this is not something, you know, there are various aspects of my own life that I wouldn't wish on anybody. I wouldn't wish on anybody to, you know, lose a parent or to get sick or, you know, any number of things that, that happen to us in our lives that define us and make us who we are. So it's important to understand there's a there's a bit of a distinction there. But overall, Thanksgiving is, is definitely my favorite holiday. And I was very blessed and fortunate to have had a great Thanksgiving surrounded by wonderful people. And um, I certainly hope that if uh, for some reason you did not find yourself in those circumstances that you are able to do so this time next year. So I've got a little bit of a, well, maybe it's a little bit of a dry topic, but um, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin are back in the news today. I'm reporting this on, uh, this is November 24th, 2018. It's been a beautiful Saturday afternoon. And of course, the price of Bitcoin continues to plummet. And uh, as a result, you know, it's back in the news and we have several, oh gosh, we have several financial pundits that are posting what I would dub to be almost irresponsible articles, you know, another obituary to Bitcoin. And so it's a really good opportunity to sort of return this topic to the forefront for a couple of reasons. Uh, First and foremost, the main reason is to make sure that um, everybody in my audience is educated about what cryptocurrency is, because it seems apparently even uh, the, the wizards of smart at places like Bloomberg and Forbes in particular can't seem to tell the difference between one coin or another. Don't know the difference between a smart contract and a hard fork. These are important technical details. And if you're a publication like Forbes that thrives on business, like your entire, uh, your entire sort of shtick is business and finance. When you get the business and finance stuff wrong on something, uh, if you're like me and you're just a very casual investor, and maybe you're looking to someplace like Forbes for information, my goodness, it really makes me question anything that I read in Forbes going forward if they allow that kind of garbage to be printed without any kind of research. So I wanted to kind of do a podcast today uh, that basically serves two functions. Number one, if you are a avid consumer of cryptocurrency, especially if you are a believer in Bitcoin, I simply wanted to lend another voice of reassurance and kind of walk through some of the most likely already known pieces of information about cryptocurrency, but just to be another sort of a a voice in the darkness that is telling you that your investment and your faith is not being misplaced and to simply reassure you that there are other people exactly like you that exist out in the world who really strongly believe in this technology, not as just a moneymaker not as a get-rich-quick scheme, but as something that legitimately has the power to change the world, to empower people beyond really virtually anything else that we have seen in the past hundred years. And we've seen some, well, you got to think, I mean, since since the dawn of the 20th century, we have seen some amazing, amazing inventions, all sorts of mechanizations to the internet, to the industrial age, to the space age. We've done some pretty incredible stuff. But money is one of the universal things, the universal tools that every single person in the United States and in Western civilization for sure, but still in many parts of the world, it's the one thing that we all have experience with. Why is it that we get up every morning and go to work? Okay, I don't know about you, but I don't get up and work and go to do my job to do it for free. 
I mean, the fact of the matter is the very basis, the very fundamental basis of employment, of work, is that we are doing things that are awful because we wouldn't do them for free, and so we insist on getting paid for them. Things like this podcast, I do this podcast for free. The thousands of dollars of equipment, the microphones, in fact, I, uh, I didn't get a response from my buddy Blair, but he probably is going to think that I'm crazy by the time he actually hears this podcast. But I threw down for a completely different, you know, a, a brand new microphone, a microphone boom, stands, cabling. Uh, I even threw down for a, um, what did I get? A USB interface. I had to like, I had to give myself a crash course on some of the professional audio equipment because I'm not an audiophile. You know, I, I have a I have a really nice pair of Sennheiser headphones because somebody told me that these are the kinds of studio quality headphones that people use and I needed them for editing videos. So um, I don't do this. You know, I don't do this to make money. God forbid if anybody ever paid me to podcast, uh, all they have to do is come back and listen to some of my first stuff and maybe, you know, reconsider that idea. I do this for fun, but I do this because I feel strongly in lending my voice into the sea of voices that already exist out there because, well, you know, I mean, there's various different times in your life that you question, no, you don't question it. You become aware of your mortality. And I mean, I'm 36 years old, so I'm not exactly, you know, I'm not at risk of dying or anything. Although if you're really young, you you might think that I might croak any minute. Because I know at least when I was, you know, when I was like 15 years old, the thought of being 35, 36, it's like, oh my God, that person's old. You know, now it's like, I don't know, I feel the same at 36 that I did at 16. I don't know what to tell you. So the bottom line is, is, you know, I, we don't, we don't do things for free. You know, we, we go to work and we earn a paycheck because some aspect of that job is awful enough that we would not do it for free. And if you're fortunate enough to work a job where you might do it for free, good for you. But the vast majority of at least the United States, I can't say how it exists in other parts of the world, but at least in the U S this is how we operate. So the podcast and stuff like that I do because I have ulterior personal motives, but I want to lend my voice. And of course, that means that I have to invest my own money in it and I may never see a return. That's something you're passionate about. It's usually very different than what you do for a living. So we we all experience these things and money is the sort of the common element that brings us all together, which is why cryptocurrency is such a very, very important topic and ultimately why I think it has the power to revolutionize the way that we manage our finances. So if you're somebody who's familiar with cryptocurrency, you might find some of this information uh, redundant or boring, but I am going to do my best to, to provide a little bit of encouragement and ultimately probably to tell a few stories that you'll all relate to um, with respect to some of the things that I'm seeing out in the internet world. Um, one thing in particular that really has very little to do with the actual the banking system per se, but as an illustration of why or where cryptocurrency really could play a role that we may not have ever considered. So I'm not going to get into the inter, into the real technical details because that's going to kind of lose people's interests. And when you're doing stuff over podcast or radio and you start talking about the tech side of things, it becomes essentially a very difficult uh aspect to walk people through. I want to try and explain cryptocurrency maybe to a few of you who may not necessarily know or grasp in the technical details, but you can understand the practical nature of the currency. Now, I need you to take whatever you've heard about Bitcoin 
or any other cryptocurrencies and you just set it aside. Because chances are a lot of the things that you've heard are not right. Because you need to understand that because we're dealing with technology and because we're dealing with technology through the eyes of financial gurus who really don't know anything about technology, they know a lot about finance. They know a lot about the stock market. They know a lot about investing. They know a lot about how currency works within the banking system, but they don't know anything about technology. These are people who, you know, as, as one famous movie quotes them, uh, they're 12 o'clock flashers. You know, some of these people are older, some of them are not, but the bottom line is chances are you're not, you're not uh, getting the right information. And needless to say, if there's anything out there that is remotely close to this Forbes article that I read today, you're, you're definitely getting the wrong information. So, Let's talk about, we're going to talk about Bitcoin specifically. And the reason why is because there's a lot of different cryptocurrency coins. Because cryptocurrency is essentially computer code, it can be created by anyone. Anyone can create a particular type of cryptocurrency. You'll often refer the, hear them referred to as projects in many cases. And that means that because anyone can create them, there are a lot of them. And yes, many coins have been created simply as a get-rich-quick scheme, as a way of separating fools from their money. I will not, I will not dispute that. But I want to talk about Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the first, really, at least the first major cryptocurrency, and continues to be the longest surviving cryptocurrency, and why that's important. So, so Bitcoin was created in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And without boring you to death about the financial crisis, something about the financial crisis that you need to know that isn't necessarily told in fictional publications like The Big Short. Now, I liked The Big Short. It's a great movie. Um, I don't necessarily have any basis to say that it was uh, heavy editorialized or anything in that nature, but it wasn't the whole story. Yes, there were shorts in the market that did bring down, you know, financial institutions that did cost some of them an enormous amount of money, some so much they went bankrupt. But the bottom line is, is that things like the 2008 financial crisis were created, the foundation for the crisis was laid by government legislation. You see, yes, businesses got greedy, businesses, uh, you know, the regulators turned their blind eye. This is all true. None of it would have been possible had the government's own rules not been taken off the table. One of those particular rules essentially made it even easier for a fractional reserve or fractional banking system to exist. And it's one of the major issues that we face right now with respect to debit and credit and stuff like that. So, one of the major things that the government did in the early 90s was it loosened a number of credit restrictions with respect to banks. And it laid the foundation for banks, which previously, if I'm not mistaken, were required to have anywhere from 10 to maybe 12% of assets to back up whatever money that they, have, that they loaned out. Government legislation allowed banks to loan out money even as much as only having 1% to 2% of assets. So for every dollar of assets that a bank had on its balance sheet, it could loan out $100 worth of loans to people. 
when you do this, it does two things. One, it sets up a very top-heavy system that if a bunch of people default on loans, there's no assets to back up those defaults. That money has to come from somewhere. It doesn't. It can't just materialize out of nowhere. It has to be backed by an asset. So when that money vanishes, someone has to pay that bill. And if there's no money left over to pay it, then people go bankrupt. Number two... When you have this fractional reserve system, you are in you are in essence you are creating money out of nothing. Okay, if you have a dollar in assets, that's a dollar of actual hard assets. That's gold, real estate, you know, precious metals, stocks, bonds, like something. Now I want to say tangible, but something that actually has real value. If you take that money, and then you loan out a hundred dollars, what are you doing? You're creating money. On the, on the hopes that that money is eventually going to be paid back by somebody. But for, that, for, the, for the period of time that that money exists out in the market in a form of a loan, that's money that doesn't exist. There's no asset backing it up. So, I mean, we have all of these banks that are operating this way. And this is essentially what fuels our entire economy. Our entire economy is built on, on debt, that's the reason why, you know, that's the reason why home prices are what they are, what our car prices are what they are. These assets wouldn't cost what they cost without the ability for people to go into debt in order to obtain them. And I know I'm getting a little in the weeds here, but essentially what ends up happening is, is that you have this aspect, this fractional reserve system. Banks can loan out massive amounts of money while retaining very little assets. And then of course come of course what comes along is the mortgage backed security. So they take these loans, they securitize them, they put them, they bundle them together and then they sell them as an actual loan investment to other uh, loan ins- or other investment institutions. Well, you know, of course, we as we know, the regulators turned a blind eye to the fact that many of the loans that were sold as being I believe AAA loans were not AAA. They were, these were loans that were in serious risk of default. And then of course the loans started going bust and the market ended up crashing. And then finally we had a bunch of people who shorted the market and they made a shitload of money. And there was a bunch of financial institutions that went out of business or, you know, ended up having to take, you know, handouts from the government. Although in many cases, the government actually forced some of the banks to take money because they, because the government wanted to nationalize the banking system. It was a giant mess, an absolutely giant mess. And maybe you're one of the unlucky, fortunate, you know, I'm sorry, I got those words crossed. One of the unlucky people who needed to cash out their 401k shortly during or after that crisis in which you lost your shirt. Now, you know, all investments are risky. You know, we all know that. But this was a crisis that didn't have to happen. There were a lot of different factors that came out of this crisis. And there was an a individual, Satoshi Nakamura, I believe is how you pronounce the last name. But Satoshi is most likely a pseudonym. It's not a real name. The person who created Bitcoin is not known, at least not publicly. So Satoshi is how, is, is how he was referred to. And there's some theories about who Satoshi might actually be. But the bottom line is the actual creator of Bitcoin is not known. It's, he's an obscure figure who disappeared around 2010. And uh, hasn't been heard of since, I think since 2010, maybe a little bit later. But the reason why, and he wrote a white paper on Bitcoin. I don't have it in front of me. I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here from what I remember reading. But there were a bunch of key factors that came out of that crisis. Namely, the ability for banks to have what they call a bail-in. Now, the two, in 2008, the banks had a bailout in which they owed a lot of money 
and they had no liquidity. They had no cash that they could use to settle debts. So the federal government came in and provided liquidity in the form of short-term loans from the Fed. And of course, what wasn't known until several years later was over the course of several years, the Fed injected somewhere around 24 to, I want to say, maybe as high as $32 trillion into the market in the form of various different loans to banks for liquidity. And of course, the, the, the Fed will tell you they didn't inject nearly that much money because they were loans. And they weren't all at the same time. But you got to understand that the federal, that the, that the, the Fed is basically printing money and giving it to banks so that they can settle their debts and they can settle these balance sheets. They're creating it out of nothing. Okay, so one of the very first things that Bitcoin was designed to do was to provide a store of value in the form of something that was deflationary. See, the one the thing about Bitcoin, and the reason why this is such a complex topic sometimes, is you can't tell the story of Bitcoin without telling the story of the dollar, and or really not even just the dollar. You can't tell the story of Bitcoin without telling the story of fiat paper money. And this is really hard for some people to understand. And if you happen to be one of these people, I implore you to please listen to me and do not turn me off and do not tune me out. This is critical. If you learn nothing else from this podcast, you need to learn the truth about the money that is in your wallet, that is in your bank account. The sooner you learn the truth about the nature of fiat paper-backed money, well, really, the more your eyes will be open into the truth of money in general. So you have to think back, you know, and I'm, and again, this is a really big paraphrasing aspect, but before there was paper, really paper notes, you had sort of promissory notes. So you had people that would deposit money in the bank. And of course, what's the purpose of the bank? Well, because, you know, when you're dealing with assets like gold, whether you're dealing in gold coins, whether you're dealing in silver, whatever the medium of exchange of value might be within a particular society, at some point, having that money on you at all times is not practical, especially when it comes to precious metals. Carrying gold, storing gold, all that stuff, it's very expensive. It's very hard. It's expensive because it can be taken from you. Gold is one of those assets that if somebody was to rob you and they'd steal your gold and they have all of your money now, there's no way to get it back. So people needed secure places where they could store their their money. And that's how the bank, of course, came to be. And the bank would do what? The bank would exchange a promissory note of some kind to you. And at some point, people began to trade these promissory notes as a form of currency. Because you knew that as long as you had a promissory note that was worth you know, four pieces of gold that you could go to the bank and you could give them that promissory note and exchange it for a, a hard asset. So when it comes to paper money, that paper money was simply the extension of this aspect. And this is where the gold standard came into play here in the United States. Because the idea was is that we needed our currency to be backed by something. A, a paper, paper money is just simply a promissory note. And it used to be, if you had, in the case of the gold standard, that you could go exchange a dollar and get a dollar's worth of gold at any particular time. And that's why it became so important for the United States to basically hoard all the gold, 
because the more gold we had, the more dollars we can have in circulation. And the idea was this helped stabilize the currency because it was actually backed by something. So the more gold that we had in the United States, the more dollars we can have in circulation. But the problem is if you're a profligate spender, if you're an irresponsible government institution, this is a not this isn't really a deflationary style currency per se, but you do not have the inflationary per, uh, properties that fiat currency has when it's not backed by anything, but what someone tells you it's backed by, or potentially whatever the market determines its you know what its value is. So you end up in this really difficult circumstance where if you're a you know, if you're the U.S. government and you need cash, well you can't just print money because you need gold to back it up. And of course you could you know you could say like well, what if we just printed a bunch of money and just hope that nobody would notice? Well, what happens if everybody decided they wanted to go and cash in at the same time? You don't have enough gold to back that currency. So then bam, the gig is up, right? So there's always that inherent risk that you can't just you can't just print money. This is the gold standard. It's got to be backed by actual gold. So after we had some financial, you know, we had some financial turnover and turmoil and, and stuff like that because of all of this, the gold standard was done away with. But in the midst of that, you had all these other countries who didn't have the gold reserves that the United States had. So this is where the notion of the world's reserve currency comes into play with fiat dollars because countries needed something to back their own currency on. So what did they do? Well, they can't have the supply of gold that the United States has because we have it. So they decided to back their currency by U.S. dollars. So now you could go in and you could exchange German marks, you know, the Brit, the British sterling pound, Japanese yen, the ruble, anything for X amount of dollars, U.S. dollars. And all these countries had dollars in reserve for their currency because the dollar was backed by gold. So if they back their currency by the dollar, it's sort of like it's backed by gold. Well, that worked really good when we had the gold standard, but once we got away from the gold standard, now we're basically just operating on essentially the full faith and credit of the United States government. And as we continue to accumulate more debt more and more every year to the tune of over 220 or $230 trillion, if you include unfunded liabilities, it starts to get really worrisome. It starts to get really worrisome. And one of the major reasons why the dollar continues to be propped up internationally is because if the value of the dollar was to plummet, the value of everyone else's currency would go along with it. So we've been in sort of this limbo game from an international perspective where countries have been secret, secretly trying to find another store of, you know, of value that maybe they can back themselves by that isn't the U.S. dollar. But the key, the keeper, or not the keeper, but the key element is oil is traded in dollars. So if you want to buy oil, you have to have U.S. dollars. It hasn't traded any other currency. And so we've had numerous instances where countries have made some grumblings about potentially having something other than dollars to use for trading oil as a way of stabilizing the price of oil because it fluctuates up and down, especially with the dollar's value itself. If the dollar becomes worth less, then the price the price of oil goes up, you know, and if it's worth more, the price of oil goes down. But the bottom line is, is that fiat currency is designed to inflate 
and it is worth nothing if it is not backed by a hard asset, of which the U.S. dollar no longer is and has not been for a very long time. So there are a few fundamental key truths about fiat currency, especially the U.S. dollar, and I'm going to give those to you right now. Number one, first and foremost, the dollar is worth nothing. It is not worth anything that someone is not willing to trade you for it. It is not backed by an asset. It is backed by zero. It is only worth something because the U.S. government tells you it's worth something. Now, I'll give you a example in the opposite direction. We're going to go to the country of India. And those of you who are involved in cryptocurrency already know the story I'm going to tell you. But if you're not familiar, just hang on a second. So in the country of India... India has a real problem. I don't know if they still do, but they used to. People wouldn't pay taxes in India. There were a lot of tax evasion that was taking place. I believe at the time, only at the height of this problem, only about 20% of the people in India actually paid income tax. So what was happening? What was happening was a lot of people were being paid in cash. So money is not being stored in banks necessarily because they're keeping the money out of the banks and they're storing it in the bank of Silipostropedic. So there's all of this cash that's floating around that's off the books and the government is not getting tax revenue for it. So how do they find, so they, the government had to, had to devise a way that they could get people to put their money on a ledger somewhere. They needed to know how much money people had. And of course, once they know how much money they have, then they can tax them appropriately. So they came up with a brilliant idea and that was to take the 100 note and I'm blanking right now as to what type of currency India is. Please do, don't knock me for that. But they took the 100 note in India and overnight said, "You, this is now worth nothing. And you have two months to two months or 90 days to exchange this note for another 100 note at your local bank, at which point the, 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 it will be illegal for anyone to use or to take that currency. And of course, it produced a somewhat predictable effect because the assumption was is that people had stacks and stacks of cash kept in their home or some secure place. And they brought it all into the bank to exchange those 100 notes for new 100 notes. And of course, if you happen to have a little too much money, your name went down on the ledger and the governments came calling asking for tax money. And they got people that way. Now, there's two, two critical lessons about this that I want you to, to take away with. And this is, there's a lot more to this story, and I do invite you to do your research on it. I'm, I'm a little thin on facts because it's been a while since I've looked into this stuff, but these are the kinds of things that we discuss when it comes to Bitcoin and fiat cash. First and foremost, as I mentioned, your paper money is only worth something because the government says it's worth something. The moment that the government says that that paper money is worthless, it becomes worthless. Anything that's backed by an asset doesn't become worthless just because someone says it's no longer worth anything. Only things that are backed by nothing, or in this case, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, only then can the government say this particular item of store of value is now worth zero. Number two, the, the, the example in India illustrates that the banks are a major choke point 
with respect to policing and monitoring the use and influx and uh, distribution of people's cash and that the banks are used as a tool by which the government can then hone in on people who might be potentially evading taxes or maybe not so much evading, but certainly not paying their fair share. Two very important lessons, which of course leads us into another aspect about fiat cash and with respect to the banks is very importantly that the money that goes into a bank does not belong to you. The minute that money leaves your hand and is put into a bank account, it does not belong to you. It belongs to the bank. And this was something that Bitcoin in particular was designed to prevent. Because what we have in the case of some type of a banking emergency, now in the case of 2008, we had a bailout. And a bailout was when the government stepped in and provided liquidity and saved several of these banks from collapse because the concept was is that if they all collapsed, then it would be a massive catastrophe economically and financially for America and potentially Western civilization as a whole. But the thing is, is that after years of legislation and looking back at what took place and analyzing the events that, that transpired, there have been a lot of laws that have been passed to harden banks. And one of the, three, one of the ways in which banks will harden themselves is something called a bail-in. Now, the difference between a bail-in and a bail-out is who the money belongs to. In the case of a bailout, the money belongs to the taxpayers. In the case of a bail-in, the money belongs to you. The bank will use your money as liquidity to bail itself out of a bad decision or a bad choice or a bad circumstance. So we have seen this happen in Greece and we have seen this happen in Cyprus. Now for me... When the financial crisis in Greece and Cyprus took place, this was my wake-up call. This is where I finally started to see the truth about debt and the truth about finances. And that's because both of these countries were dealing with, and in some cases still are, dealing with massive debt. Massive debt. Now, using Greece as an example, Greece at the time was part of the European Union. I believe they still are. I haven't actually taken the time to look into it. That's how much I've been following a lot of the stuff in Europe. But Greece was a member of the European Union. Now, unlike the United States, where we can print our own money, the, Euro the European Union has a formulation of all these different countries for the purposes of strengthening their currency. And they have the euro. Well, you, if you're in Greece, you can't print more euros because the Europeans have a central bank and a central banking committee that handle all of the money printing, and it's not necessarily ran by any one country. In fact, that's one of the major problems with Europe right now is the fact that these committees are not necessarily tied to any one country, but yet they make policy that governs all these countries. It's a real mess. So here's Greece. They've got all this debt that they have to pay, and they don't have any money to pay it because they can't print more euros. So what happens? Well, they had to go somewhere. They had to go somewhere for the cash. And so they started raiding people's bank accounts. They started raiding people's bank accounts. If you had more than a million euros in your account or in your retirement account, your money got taken and an IOU was placed in its, in its stead. Now, in some cases, now I'm going to get two, I'm going to get a couple of these mixed up because I can't remember what happened where. 
But with respect to Greece and Cyprus, in some cases, you had people getting stock options for the banks themselves that were worth maybe 25 cents on the dollar. Okay. So some, sometimes people got their, they got, they got something, but in many places people got nothing. Their money was stolen by the government and used to pay debt because otherwise without it, the uh, countries like Greece were in the midst of these loan negotiations from the central bank. They needed the loans to keep themselves afloat. So these were extreme measures. So the, so the government of Greece was like, well, we could either let these people who have over a million euros in their account keep their money, which of course, if you're a central planner, these rich people shouldn't be allowed to keep their money. They need to redistribute it to the masses anyway. So they don't even, they don't need that money. So they're going to take that money because, and they have a more grand purpose for it. They're going to save the country with it. So they took people's money. Some of them who never got any of it back. And then, of course, Greece was able to secure these loans for the central bank and keep themselves afloat. But it was the massive amount of spending and the massive amounts of debt that these countries had accumulated that got them into trouble. And the most important thing that lesson that we can learn from this is the fact that when it comes to the government, the banks don't care whose money it belongs to. If the government says they want it, the banks are going to give it to them because they're, they exist in a symbiotic relationship the governments need the power of the banks in order to enforce things like tax law. And the banks need the government because, of course, that's where they make a tremendous amount of money is via the, is via the government regulation and government services. And, of course, the government provides the means of carving out the specific tax policies and the regulatory compliances and everything to make it so that banks can continue to be profitable, but make it so that it's not easy enough for anybody to open a bank and thus create new competition. This is all vitally important to understand that fiat currency, paper-based currency, it does, it's not worth anything unless the government says it's worth something. When your money goes into the bank, it's no longer your money. If the government wants your money, they're going to take it. The banks will not stop them. And you may, if you're lucky, get it back, but only after years and years of litigation in the courts. Meanwhile, what? What do you have? You've got nothing. You've got nothing. You're selling your home. You're selling your cars. You know, you're selling any possessions that you possibly have to pay attorneys to try and get your money back. And meanwhile, you still got to eat. You still got to shower. You still got to work. You still got to send your kids to school. You still have to have a roof over your head. If you have electricity, all this stuff costs money. So you can hopefully understand the danger of debt and how powerless you are when it comes to controlling your money. Now, of course, you could say, well, what about cash? You know, I can just not use a bank and keep cash at my home and I can just operate on a cash-based society. And you can do that today. But there are, there are a couple of problems. Um, number one, of course, storing cash at, at your home is risky. Cash can be stolen in theft. Cash can be lost in a fire, a flood, uh, any number of circumstances in which your cash could become damaged and unusable or taken from you. Cash can also be seized. Should there be a situation perhaps where you have an abnormally amount, large amount of cash on the premises and that come to the attention of law enforcement, they're going to come get it. Because these days, police believe that if you have un -nor you know, not normal amounts of cash, either on your person or in your home, then they seize that money under asset forfeiture laws. Because those laws were designed to prevent drug dealers and drug distributors from 
essentially using their cash to buy homes and profit. That was originally why asset forfeiture laws were passed, which allowed law enforcement to seize assets that may have been purchased through the use or distribution of drugs. But instead, now it's being used to wage a war on cash, where police are seizing money from people, and in many cases not even charging them with a crime, and they are not getting their money back. This is not a joke. This isn't just one case or two cases. I'm talking hundreds of these cases. And all of this is available for research on the internet. If you doubt me in the least, go look and go research yourself, please. You have instances of people coming in from other countries with tens of thousands of dollars in cash to make real estate purchases. That tends to be something that happens frequently where people are traveling with large amounts of cash to buy some type of assets, namely real estate, or to open businesses or things like that. And you may say, well, what does someone possibly need to carry over $10,000 in cash? And my answer is none of your fucking business. Seriously. If you feel that way, I just want you to understand it's nothing personal. It's none of your business what someone is doing with over $10,000 in cash. None of your business. And just because they're doing it in cash doesn't mean they're trying to break the law. Some people don't want to pay massive bank transfer fees. You ever tried sending cash through Western Union? It's expensive, especially if you're sending it to countries that are like, have major war-torn problems. There are stories all over the place talking about how Western Union screws people over by charging, in some cases, up to 40% of the value of the money being sent. It's a, it's an, it's a scam. So you understand that we, we live in a society now where every single transaction has a corporation in the way. Every time you use your credit card, there's a corporation between you and the, and the, and the, and the seller. You go to Target to buy something. You're not paying Target. Your bank is paying Target. And so you, but that money eventually will come from you. But if it's a debit situation where it actually comes out of your checking account, it goes to your bank and then your bank pays Target. There's always a corporation in the way. And every time a corporation is put in the way, they get their cut. And of course, they also control whether or not that payment actually gets made. So in the case of cash, some people don't want to pay the fees. Some people just prefer dealing in cash. But this notion that dealing in cash and something that's also been applied to cryptocurrency does not mean that you're actually breaking the law. But this is where law enforcement um, departments, it's not a universal principle, but there are law enforcement departments that literally get rich off of asset forfeiture. They seize assets. They sell them, and in many states, they are allowed to keep some or all of the proceeds. So there's actually a conflict of interest with these law enforcement departments seizing people's money illegally because they get to keep some of it or all of it. That's a huge problem. So you can understand, like, there's all of these vulnerabilities that cash has. There's all these vulnerabilities. Yes, it has. Yes, you can use it anonymously. Yes, you can transport it, but like gold, it's risky, it's expensive to transport, and now with the war on cash, 
keeping cash in large quantities and using it in large quantities is very, very difficult and it's very risky. Are you going to risk bringing dollars $60,000 in cash to go do a down payment on a house knowing that if you get pulled over for a seatbelt violation or a broken taillight, cop looks in the back seat and sees about half a dozen briefcases, opens those up and they're full of, they're full of $100 bills. You're going to take the chance that they're going to let you walk away with that money when it's like your life savings, when it's the equity out of a home that you had for 20 years? No way. Absolutely not. You're going to do that electronically. And when it's done electronically, it's tracked, it's monitored. And, uh, you know, more importantly, it's, it's, it's taxed through a, you know, bank fees and transfer fees and all sorts of BS like that. So this is the setup. So if you've listened this long, I appreciate your time, but this is all very important. This, this really sets the stage, laying out the problems. So Bitcoin comes along. Bitcoin is designed to do a few things. Number one, first and foremost, it's a deflationary currency. It's artificially set at a maximum of 21 million coins. Now you may ask yourself, how the hell did they do this? So Bitcoin was designed from the ground up to be one thing, and that is uncopyable. It was the very first digital creation, digital file that could not be copied, that could not be copied. And it uses a, a cryptography methodology known as a public key, private key, public key, private key cryptography. And the best way that I can describe it is these are described as one-way computations where the computation can be done very easily in one direction, but reversing the computation is enormously difficult to the point where it would take a, a normal conventional computer hundreds of years to be able to potentially guess the computation in the opposite direction. So it essentially allowed the creation of a digital asset or a digital file that could not be copied. Now, how it accomplishes this are, is done through two methods. One is referred to as a Bitcoin node and the other is a Bitcoin miner. And I'll explain those in a second. The properties of Bitcoin were that it is not able to be duplicated, which was solving a major, major problem within any type of digital currency, which is known as the double spend problem. And it's very easy to understand. Double spend, because files can be copied. Anything on a computer can be copied. So the idea was a double spend issue was where you take a piece of digital currency and you spend it with one retailer, but then you take that exact same digital currency and duplicate it and you spend it with another retailer. Well, you can't do this because if you're able to endlessly duplicate a currency, it loses its value. The, the reason why things like gold or real estate, you know, why these things have value is because they exist in a limited, uncopyable quantity. People have been trying for, how long do we hear the jokes about the alchemists trying to turn lead into gold? You know, like people have tried to duplicate gold and they can't do it. Gold is a, is a, you know, is a, is a mineral within the earth. And yes, while the total amount of gold is unknown, we know that it can't be copied. It can't be artificially created. It has to be mined. And mining is a difficult, expensive, and time-consuming process. And so the supply of gold does not fluctuate wildly. In the case of Bitcoin, through cryptography, we have now an asset that cannot be copied and exists in a limited, 
quantity in the case of 21 million coins. There were some other components to it in particular that made it very unique was that the system was designed to be trustless. And what that means is, is that you do not have any type of a central authority that determines whether or not the currency has already been spent. And I'll discuss this with the nodes in a moment, but basically that it does not have, there is no trust needed within a central authority to know who has or hasn't spent the currency. Most importantly, the currency is neutral. So no one is in charge of deciding who spends Bitcoin and where. Bitcoin can be spent anywhere that it's accepted. It can be given to anybody. It can be spent anywhere. And it's not re- the transactions are not reversible. And so the idea is that no one can be frozen out of the system. So no more of this nonsense about banks deciding, you know, well, we're sorry, but you can't spend money on this. Or closing accounts or seizing assets. That's important to know is that Bitcoin cannot be seized unless you control the private keys to the coins. The coins exist on the internet. They exist on what they call a blockchain. And the blockchain is nothing more than a public-facing ledger. So if you think about a book, a ledger that contains every single Bitcoin transaction that has ever existed since its inception, this ledger is then shared across about maybe say anywhere from 11 to 21,000 nodes across the world. Now, what is a node? A node is what essentially has an entire copy of the blockchain on it. It's just a simple computer system. It's designed to do one thing, and that is in the event of a Bitcoin transaction, so Bitcoin moving from one wallet to another, one hand to another, a random node is contacted, by the Bitcoin network, and that node looks at the blockchain and determines whether or not that currency has already been spent. If it has not been spent, then the node gives it an okay, gives it a thumbs up. In the process of the transaction, people usually use two, three, four, five, sometimes six nodes before a transaction is deemed as confirmed. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because if one node happened to be compromised, You have another random node, which significantly decreases the chance of fraud. You have another node that will also confirm the transaction. And as you continuously add random nodes into the transaction confirmation, the the chances of it being a double spent transaction become exponentially less and less and less. Now, the second part is the miner. And you hear a lot about Bitcoin mining. The purpose of the miner is to write to the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, to this public ledger. So every time a transaction takes place, the ledger has to be written to. And the process by which it gets written to is a little technical. I'm not going to bore everybody with it. But essentially, it basically involves a computer system having to brute force all of these different algorithms until it discovers the correct one. And then it's deemed as writing the block. Now, the important thing to understand is when a block gets written, after these computations have been made and the computer has guessed the right answer, then the miner itself, the person who's doing the mining, is given a reward of several coins. So there is a financial incentive to mine Bitcoin because you get Bitcoins in the process of mining. Now, there's a couple of ways that people do it. You can mine independently as a single miner, but you have a very small chance of actually getting a block correct because 
the network monitors the total amount of mining power that it has inherent in it. Because again, if you're getting coins as rewarded for doing your mining, we have a 21 million coin limit. So if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we could potentially mine all the Bitcoins in a matter of days. So the network actually automatically adjusts to the amount of mining power that is being thrown at it through a thing called difficulty. And as more mining power enters the network, the difficulty of mining a block goes up. The computer system basically just starts adding zeros, which increases the difficulty tremendously for it to solve the algorithm and guess it. This is where you hear about a lot of the power consumption nonsense when it comes to Bitcoin. And I, I'm only going to mention that a lot of the reports with, with regards to the total amount of power that's consumed to mine Bitcoin are completely inaccurate. But needless to say, there are a lot of people who are mining, or at least there is a lot of mining power. And that's very important for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it helps keep the, the value of Bitcoin up because it keeps the coins flowing and it sort of decentralizes who is getting paid out in some cases, all these coins, not a bad deal. But the other thing is because miners along with the nodes influence the actual software versions that Bitcoin operates under. You have to remember, this is a piece of software. It's not, it's not a coin, it's code. And so that code, like any other piece of technology is going to need upgrades. There are going to be flaws. There are going to be imperfections. And so there's going to continuously be innovations within the code and this is where miners and nodes kind of come into play is that it requires a consensus amongst the different miners and the node operators as to which direction the coin is going to go. And the reason why this is important is because people naturally are only going to go for the types of technological innovations that are going to increase the value of the coin. People are not going to intentionally sabotage the coin because then they will more likely sabotage their own wallet. Now, this introduces some complications because this is where you hear about things like forks. And forks are essentially where two different currencies are created. And most often is because some type of a major innovation known as a hard fork is taking place with any particular coin. Now, most recently, we had one with something called Bitcoin Cash, which if you're if you happen to be a member of Forbes, you might be surprised to know that Bitcoin Cash is not Bitcoin. Bitcoin Cash was a hard fork off of the off of the Bitcoin blockchain, and it had to do with the size, like the actual physical file size of each block transaction. And the reasons why are going to bore everybody. I'm not going to keep you guys here all night about what's taking place with that. The bottom line is to understand that these are two completely separate currencies. Now, the reason why forks can sometimes be contentious is because they take a snapshot of the blockchain. So you just have to imagine, you know, visually you have a single line and then that line splits off into two directions, each representing a different coin. Now the key is, is that whoever held, in the case of Bitcoin Cash, whoever held Bitcoin, so let's say you had one Bitcoin at the time that Bitcoin Cash was created through a hard fork. Well, they took a snapshot of that blockchain at the time the fork took place. And people are then awarded a Bitcoin cash coin, you know, because you had one Bitcoin itself when the fork happened. Well, now you have a big one Bitcoin and you have one Bitcoin cash coin. 
So money has kind of appeared out of nowhere. And that's what's really dangerous. And ultimately, if you're a person like me and you believe that Bitcoin cash was nothing more than a get-rich-quick scheme, these are the six, these are the circumstances where people can create money out of thin air. And that's a very dangerous thing with respect to cryptocurrency because that's not what we want. We want a deflationary currency. Now, what do I mean by that? I know I've said that several times and you might be sitting there going, what the hell are you talking about? Well, deflationary currency, let's talk about what it is by what it is not. Fiat currency is inflationary because we print more of it as time goes on. That's where you hear about the rate of inflation. So the dollar becomes worth less every single year. This is why we talk about the cost of inflation, adjustments for inflation. So every single year, if you're fortunate, your company will give you a cost of inflation increase in your salary. That's not a that's not a promotion, that's not a bonus. It's the company recognizing that you now have less spending power than you did before and they want to make sure that you're compensated for the same amount of value that you bring the company. It's the reason why if you saved 20, if you saved $10 in 1920 and you did nothing with it until today, that you have just lost a tremendous amount of spending power through inflation. $20 in, or $10 in the case of this argument, I apologize. $10 in 1920 will go a lot farther then than $10 will today in, two, in 2018. So we don't want that really in, in some respects. Now, there are some downsides to the opposite, which is deflationary currency. But the major problem with a currency like the US dollar that is inflationary is, is what happens when you have days like now where the interest rates are still very, very low. Because interest rates are one of the things that help mechanisms, help people save by essentially, you know, giving them a little bit of an investment for their cash. But if you put your money in savings, and let's say you have a three to 4% interest rate, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. Because not only are you earning enough money every single year to offset the cost of inflation or the amount of inflation that's increased every single year, so you're maintaining your spending power, but you're earning a little bit extra by letting the bank use your money to loan out to other people. But when your interest rate is like 0.01%, that means that if you put your money in the bank, if you put $20,000 in the bank and you leave it there for 10 years, at a 0.01% interest rate, like you're going to get nothing. In fact, you will have lost money by waiting that long. So the conditions that were created after 2008 have kind of been this interesting but ser but serious perfect storm. We have rock bottom interest rates, which means credit is cheaper than ever. So it's cheaper than ever to, you know, to spend money that you don't have. Number two, we have these, we have massive amounts of spending by the federal government, so we have this rising debt. And eventually, the debt is going to become so insurmountable that we're going to be crushed by it. And when that happens, the dollar is going to be crushed by it too, because the world is going to have to switch to something that isn't in total chaos and turmoil to keep prices stabilized. But as an individual, what ends up happening is if you're a saver, you're a sucker. You're a sucker. And yeah, okay, you're saving for a rainy day. And yes, you can handle those emergencies. But if anybody's, if I have a credit card, with a, if I have a credit card with a $20,000 limit on it, that's I, I can save for rainy days too. And I don't have to save a dime. If I get into trouble, I just use my credit card. I don't need cash. 
Meanwhile, if you save cash, you're a sucker because that money is worth less every single year. So what does it do? It encourages people to do the wrong things. It encourages people to spend and it discourages people to save. Whereas on the flip side with something like Bitcoin, because it's deflationary, in theory, it has the potential to be worth more every single year. Why? Because as more and more of it is accumulated in more and more hands every single year, then the actual value of the coin goes up because it has a finite amount. As less of it is, as, as it, the currency becomes more dispersed, as more people have it, that means the average amounts of quantities that each person has are you know less and less and less. And thus the value of the currency goes up because now every single year you have to provide more value to entice people to part with their currency. Now, how is this possible? It's possible because one of the innovations within Bitcoin is it is divisible up to 100 million times. 100 million. Which means it would have to be worth $100 million for every coin before what is referred to as a Satoshi, before one Satoshi equals $1. Up until then, it's divisible by virtually any amount that you can possibly desire. So you can own as much You can own one cent, you can own half a cent, a quarter of a cent, you know, one sixty-fourth of a cent of Bitcoin, maybe, if my math is right, but it's probably wrong. Point is, is that it's divisible by enough means that it fits our current monetary system without a problem. And we have an enormous amount of headroom before anybody's got to worry about anything. So the currency can become more deflated over time and it will not impact the ability for people to spend it. You can imagine if, for instance, the U.S. dollar was deflationary to the point where all of a sudden we get down to where we're spending pennies and it's like, well, what if I want to spend half a penny? I don't want to spend a whole cent. I want to spend half a cent. Well, we don't have any, we have no physical way of representing a half a cent. So we end up having to either create a completely new coin or we end up in a major crisis. But you can see where from an electronic standpoint, how it's very advantageous to have this type of a setup because it can be deflationary and people still be able to spend it. But most importantly, people will be rewarded for saving it. And there won't be any capability to print more. Now you could say, okay, we can do a hard fork and you can create more coins, But that's only if people recognize that coin is having any value. That's the other key, too, is if people don't see any value in it, then it doesn't matter. Now, I know I'm getting a little in the weeds here. So I'm going to kind of pull back because we're past an hour and I want to be respectful of your time. But I also want to make sure I get this information out there. I want you to think about Bitcoin as a form of digital gold. This really like it's 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 all of the best things about gold and none of the drawbacks. And it's been referred to as digital gold. I didn't make that up. First and foremost, it is a deflationary currency, just like gold is. Number two, the fact that it's a store of value and it's an asset. It cannot be copied, just like gold cannot be copied. But it doesn't have the disadvantages of gold. For instance, number one, gold is hard to divide. It's it's divisible, but it's not divisible very easily. You know, and of course, even if it is divisible, like some of these, you see some of these like survivalist gold investments where they're like, here's a $20 sliver of gold. How do I know that's gold? 
Seriously, like, how do you how do you know it's gold? How do I know that it's not just something that you made up? So if you pay me in two hundred dollars worth of gold, that's all in these little gold slivers. I mean, you need a chemist to tell you that it's actually gold. Whereas Bitcoin, the the authentication, the the um, the ability to prove that it's Bitcoin is inherently built into the technology. You can't create Bitcoin out of nothing, and so. The nodes, the node system, and the the way the entire uh, system, the way the architecture and the technology operate, you know that it's a real, authentic Bitcoin. Secondly, it's not bound by any restrictions with transportation or storage. Gold is expensive to store via vaults. It's also expensive to move. If you move three million dollars, five million dollars of gold, you're not going to just put it in a briefcase, throw it in the back of your car and transport it across town. That's a lot of money in gold. You have to hire a security team. You have to hire an armored car. And then finally, gold is difficult to move. It's heavy. It's heavy, especially in large quantities. So you can imagine, what if you had to leave your country? What if you were coming to the United States? How do you, you, could you get into the United States with $10 million in gold? through the commercial airline department? No way. You'd be seized at customs. They'd have you in handcuffs. They'd be like, who the hell are you? Why are you coming in with $10 million worth of gold? What is wrong with you? You could carry $100 million in Bitcoin in your pocket and no one would know. You can carry it on a USB stick. No one would know. Hell, you don't even have to keep it on a USB stick. You can just have it stored in a software wallet with a password and access information that you have in your head. You could even use what's called a paper wallet, which is a whole other aspect. But I mean, you can move Bitcoin across the planet and no one would ever know. They couldn't tell you who it belonged to. They couldn't tell you where it was going. Nothing like that. And it doesn't cost to store it. It doesn't cost to transport it. You do have a very small minor fee in some cases, and that's just to help, you know, make sure that you prior people are prioritizing transactions and things like that, some of the minutiae of it. But the bottom line is, is that it has none of the disadvantages of gold. So now you could, in theory, move money across state lines. You can move money from one side of the United States to the other, and no one would know, and no one could take it from you. That's the key. No one can take the money from you. And the reason why no one can take the money from you is because your Bitcoins don't sit in a bank. You are the bank. You are the bank. You are not bound by regulatory concerns. You are not bound by any aspects of international banking law. That money is in your possession and you are the bank. So now, if you decide, for example, that you are going to buy something with your Bitcoin, there is no longer a corporation that sits in front of you that can deny that transfer or that takes their cut. All of that is eliminated. Now, I know this has been a lot to take in, and you may still be kind of thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with anything? I'm going to tell you a little story. This was an article I found today. This is from Bloomberg. And the article is titled, uh, quote, I hereby confess judgment. And this is talking about uh, some of the cash advance loan schemes. And this is an article from November 20, 2018. I'm not going to read the article. It's very long. 
What this article discusses is a bunch of people who have been victimized by business loan agreements with a particular set of companies that are operating out of New York State. And it's because New York State has the ability to, they allow a, a judgment confession. I don't want to peruse this too long, but essentially they still allow a financial document that has ties all the way back to English common law, which essentially basically is a um, recipient of the loan. You basically waive your rights to any kind of litigation or lawsuits in the event that there's a, there's a disagreement between you and the person who lent you the money as to whether or not maybe you've violated their loan terms. And this basically kind of amounts to a form of predatory lending. And it's really fascinating to me because of course I've seen so many, uh, nonsense accusations about this with respect to bank loans about redlining and all this sort of stuff. And in many cases, I feel like a lot of these particular instances where people claim that there's some type of abuse of minorities with home loans and stuff like that, that it really comes down to these people signed a contract, made an agreement and they didn't, they didn't fulfill the agreement and now they're in trouble. Like if you sign a contract, you have to follow, you have to abide by the, the, the contract. And I'm sorry that maybe you weren't intelligent enough to understand what the contract was or that you didn't do your due diligence and maybe have an attorney look it over. These are the consequences of business. You make a promise in the form of a contract, you have to abide by the contract or pay the penalty. It's as simple as that. And when it comes to money, nobody has any business borrowing cash unless they understand exactly what the hell is going on. Like, you know, I don't care if it's home loan, a car loan, a personal loan, credit loan, whatever it is, you need to understand very clearly what it is that you're agreeing to, first and foremost. In this case, there were accusations that the lending companies actually forged documentation or made significant corrections to the documentation and the contracts after they had been signed. Now, I'm not a contract lawyer, but I know basically that if you change the date, if you cross out the date on a contract and write it in, that contract is null and void. It's it's that's it. There's some minor stuff that you can correct on a contract, but like big stuff like the name of the business or the people who are on the contract, if you make those corrections, that contract's null. It's it's done. So there were instances where people were legitimately screwed out of their money. And those in those instances, the lenders need to be prosecuted. But they discussed how people were taking out loans with a particular set of loan companies and these loan companies were charging loan shark interest rates, like 350% APR interest. It's, it's insane. And then something would happen. Either they'd miss a payment like, and they're paying daily. Like they use the example of one, one couple running a business. They borrowed $36,762 from this company called ABC merchant solutions, LLC. And they were making $800 daily payments. And then the, ABC Merchant Solutions Company claimed that they had missed a payment. But of course, when the couple called them to figure out what was going on, they they played that everything was fine. Well, then a few days later, the bank took $52,886 from their account, just stripped it right out of their bank account. And it goes back to this aspect within New York State where the there are these predatory lending companies that essentially are wooing people with these business loans when they are having trouble getting them. And then of course they're charging exorbitant interest rates to jack up the total cost of money that these people would pay. 
they're manufacturing or falsifying reasons for why they're for you know, they're foreclosing on the house with the loan. And then of course the banks are being contacted by the New York State Legislature, all of which you need to understand the people involved at the state legislature uh, within the government system within the state of New York, they're all they're all getting a cut of this. So the the rails are greased all over the place. It's in everybody's best interest to go along with this nonsense. And then the people who have these loans are getting the money stripped right out of their bank accounts. Like there's nothing that they can do. And the banks are so heavily regulated and they're so in bed with government. They will not stand in the way. They don't give a shit about whose money it is or how much of it is, is in there. If the government says we're taking it, the bank's like, here you go. Because fighting it is not worth it. Banks are in it to make money and you can't make money if you're out of business because you've been shut down by the government. Now, there's a lot more of this story. It's a terrible story. And it's kind of half and half to me. Like, it's half lending companies that are breaking the law. And it's half of people who were signing stuff that they had absolutely no idea what they were agreeing to. So, you know, the bottom line is, you know, A, please be careful with what you sign with contracts. Please, please, please. But secondly, if this was all in Bitcoin, the lending, these lending companies would have got zero. They'd have got nothing. They wouldn't have gotten a dime because there'd have been no bank. You're the bank. The government would have been calling you and saying, you need to pay so-and-so some money. And you'd be like, I'm not paying them anything. And then you would have had to have gone to court because of course, litigation for companies like this, it takes years. In the meantime, you have the benefit of having their money and having used their money. And of course, there's not any promise that they're going to get their money back. But with respect to cryptocurrency, you don't get, you don't give it up unless you voluntarily give it up. And there have been stories of hackings and stuff like that. And you need to understand that a lot of the hackings happen in these major large exchanges. By and large, people don't lose cryptocurrency unless they are significantly ignorant on what they're doing. They give away private keys to give away passwords, the, the things like that. There is some responsibility with respect to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Like you, you can't be an idiot about this stuff. You have to be a little savvy on what you're doing and make sure that you're not making mistakes. And of course, there are some opportunities for people to engage in what they call man in the middle, man in the middle attacks, which could allow someone to get access to information that could help them take your coins. But it's not prevalent. And if you're careful and if you're smart, it's not a problem at all. I have not come close to having any of my stuff stolen and I've done some movements and I got stuff on exchanges and things like that. And for full disclosure, I have a lot, I do own a, I do own a decent amount of Bitcoin, but I use this story as an example. There are, there's like 12 or 1500 active cases that the couple in this article are, have, have discovered and millions and millions and millions of dollars, probably well more than that. So, if this was a cryptocurrency situation, none of these people would have lost their money because once the transaction was completed, it's one way. There's no taking it back. You can't reverse a Bitcoin transaction. Once the transaction is on the blockchain, it is done. The ledger is irreversible. So, you know, this is just one example of where Bitcoin could potentially have prevented people from being taken advantage of by the banking system. So, there's a lot more to Bitcoin. I invite you to do a little bit more research into the technical side of things. 
and into some of the practical ideas. But what really caught my attention with things like cryptocurrency are the aspects of individual responsibility, the aspects of being your own bank. I can't stand banks. And even the bank that I'm with, it's not like... It's not like I don't like them. It's not like they're mean to me. It's not like they've really given me any trouble. They take, they have my money and I get my money and there's never really been any problem. But it's the fact that I have to ask somebody else for permission to get my money. I mean, as an example, if you bank with any of the major, major banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, um, you know, you know, name your name your fill in the blank, you know, pretty large bank corporation. You ever gone to your local branch and asked them for $10,000? Just go down there and say, hey, I would like to withdraw $10,000 in cash. Chances are the answer is going to be no. And they'll tell you, well, we don't carry that much cash on hand on site. That's the first and foremost. But there have, there, there, if the bank can tell you no, like you're not getting access to your money. And going back to the cases of Greece and Cyprus, when people started realizing that their money was being taken from them, there was a run on the banks, at which point the banks closed. They closed. So now there was a period of time where if you were in these countries, the banks were closed. You needed cash. You couldn't get it. You couldn't get it. And then when the banks were reopened, you had a daily limit of 300 euros that you can withdraw or you can transfer out. So your money was hostage in these banks. They did not allow you to do what you wanted with your own cash. That's your money. That's your property. Except it's not. It's not your property. When it goes into the bank, it becomes the bank's property. You simply have permission to access it should they let you. And so that's one of the things about cryptocurrency is is that it's liberating we have dealt with a banking style system for hundreds of years, if not potentially much longer than that. But this is the way our life is structured with respect to money. No one who is alive today knows anything different other than a bank storing your cash. And as time has gone on and the convenience of electronic money has come into play, Cash has become less and less prevalent when they first started doing electronic checks and then credit cards and so on and so forth. So it's important to understand that money is not worth anything unless the government says it is. When the money goes into the bank, it belongs to the bank, not you. If the government decides that somebody else is going to get that money, they're going to take it. Think about the IRS. The IRS can seize assets at a moment's notice. Boom, take that money right out of your account. It's gone. It is gone. Money that you worked for, money that you earned legitimately, legally, we hope, it's gone. You don't have any control of your money. You don't control your money in the bank. But yeah, you can have cash, but there's all these disadvantages to cash. Yeah, you can have gold, but there's all these disadvantages to gold. So you can hopefully see why this is such a a hugely important project. Why cryptocurrency is so vital. If you are a believer in individual freedom, 
an individual liberty, an individual responsibility. If you are a believer in being free of corporate control in this regard, where a corporation can actually decide whether or not you will spend money on certain items. Those of you out there who are involved in a lot of stuff with the Second Amendment know what's coming eventually will be banks who band together and refuse to allow customers to spend their money on anything having to do with firearms. No ammunition, no guns, no ammunition accessories, nothing. That's coming. It doesn't happen now because it's not popular now and because it could potentially be a suicidal move by a bank. But the minute that there's cover, these banks are going to start closing off gun stores. Why? Because they're going to be under pressure from the government. Operation Choke Point, what we saw impacting several different, specifically gun businesses, where banks were closing accounts to gun stores or gun suppliers, was initiated by the FDIC. It was initiated by a federal, a, a piece of federal bureaucracy, a federal department. The FDIC was initiating investigations into these accounts, and banks are so scared to death of the regu- of the regulators that they were just closing accounts. When the FDIC later was like, "Oh, actually, we didn't we didn't find anything pro- we didn't find anything wrong with that account," the banks were so scared to death that just the just the Just the fact the FDIC was looking into a customer account of theirs, they closed it. The government is influencing banks to carry out ideological desires. Segments of the government do not like guns. They do not like gun ownership. They do not believe in the constitutional right to self-defense, nor the constitutionally guaranteed right to bear arms. And so they are using their power to shut down financial access for as many different gun-related businesses as they can that they can get away with. And that's when they really don't have, you know, you can't do too much because it attracts too much attention. But you do just a little bit to kind of test it out and then you do a little bit more. So you can imagine if they could do it with total impunity, if they were not going to be punished at all, what other businesses would they be shutting down? Would they be shutting down businesses that have some aspect of Religion at their core, like Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A, you can imagine the government using its power to dictate who gets to stay in business, who doesn't, based on its own ideological viewpoint of that business. If you have cryptocurrency, none of that, you can't do any of that. What do they They can't tell you that you can't spend your money. I can spend my money. The technology allows me to spend my money. It transcends governments. It transcends countries. It's global. It's global. There's no stopping it. You can't stop Bitcoin. You have to turn off the fucking internet to stop Bitcoin at this point. Some people are doing a really fantastic job trying to stop it through the price action. But the price action is an inherent part of the sort of the organic nature of Bitcoin. It's, it's hard to describe. There's there's an enormous amount of historical precedence for the volatility. The volatility is going to continue until there is mass adoption, until there is more money, in, in, until there's money in the hands of more people, the volatility is going to continue. There's just nothing that we can do about it. 
but you have the price of Bitcoin and you have the principle and spirit of Bitcoin. And that's, re- I'm focusing really on the principle and spirit because I know there are a number of people out there who probably are listening to this podcast right now who have Bitcoin and who are freaking out because they've lost a lot of money, but you've lost it on paper. And you know what? I'm right there with you. I got some investments that are down 98% and you know what? I'm going to the bottom. I don't care. I will take this bitch all the way to zero because... Well, number one, because I can afford to lose the money. And it's not an insignificant amount. I just want to put that out there. But more importantly, because for me, it's it's almost an insurance policy. I have money that no one can get to. Who else can say that? I have money that no one can get to. Not the IRS, not the FBI, nobody. Not my bank, not my employer. Not some scam artist. You got to know you have, I have something I know and I have something that I have. I mean, so there are very few conditions that would exist where someone is going to be able to get access to my Bitcoin. Very few. And that's, that's crucially important because cash and gold and, and, you know, electronic money, all that stuff there, they have all these massive vulnerabilities. And that's not to say that Bitcoin is perfect either. Bitcoin has its, it has its faults, but it's technology. Technology evolves. It can be improved. It can be innovated on, and they're continuing to innovate. One of the major problems of Bitcoin has been scalability. As more people have started to use it, the network becomes more congested. It becomes more difficult to get transactions through, and that's why innovations such as the Lightning Network have taken place, which is a off-chain transactional network. That allows people to exchange currency off-chain, and then only once those, what they refer to as channels, are closed, then the transactions are settled and it's the blockchain is written. So you could potentially have all these transactions taking place all day, all day, all day, all day, and then someone finally decides that they're going to close their channel down, and then they have to write to the blockchain. But man, you could probably go years of off-chain transactions before you finally have to settle up. So it's stuff like that innovations will continue to happen because innovations make the currency more valuable. So that's where the incentive comes into play to improve upon it. Because the more you improve Bitcoin, the more Bitcoin will potentially be worth. And if you hold Bitcoin, the more money you stand to make. But of course, the important thing to keep in mind is, is that we look at the value of Bitcoin from the perspective of the U.S. dollar which is an inflationary fiat currency that is only worth something because the U.S. government says it's worth something. And I'm hoping that sometime soon we will get to the point where we are no longer evaluating Bitcoin under the basis of how much it is worth in dollars and instead be evaluating Bitcoin in terms of how much it is worth in the market. How much am I able to buy with Bitcoin? Not how much is it worth in terms of dollars. Who knows how long that is going to take? It could take a while. But the bottom line is, is that I talk about this today because, of course, it's all over the news and, you know, people are naturally freaking out because, oh, there's price moves, price movements and it's going down. And you have a couple of people who write obituaries. The obituaries for Bitcoin are probably one of the most entertaining aspects of the entire debate because there are hundreds of obituaries that have been written about Bitcoin since its inception in 2009. People have declared the, Bitcoin, the death of Bitcoin so many times. It is a joke now. 
and what was like a, whatever this article was from Forbes that I was reading earlier, where essentially they you know said, "Oh, stick a fork in it, it's done." Like, give me a break. <laughs> you know, it's like if you if I had a Bitcoin for every time somebody said it was dead, I'd be a very rich man right now. So the notion that um, that it is done and over with is it's it's grossly underestimating the resilience of the technology and the communities that are behind it. But if you don't own cryptocurrency, I mean, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to do. I'm just sitting here telling you that I believe in the technology and I believe in the problems the technology is trying to solve. And it's really super scary to some people because, well, it's all part of that limited liability life. People want to earn their money and they don't want to be thinking about where it's going. They don't want to be afraid of losing it. They don't want to be afraid of, you know, accidentally misplacing a password or misplacing a hardware wallet or they don't want to be responsible for managing the ownership of their cash. They just want to put it in the bank and they just want to go and swipe their credit card. They don't even want to think about it, even though they're paying, you know, the banks charge billions with a B is in boy, billions of dollars every year in just fees, just fees. And many of these fees are from people who are over withdrawing accounts, you know, so like the fees are coming from the people who probably stand that, that are like the, the people who need to lose money or need people who need to pay fees the least. The people who have the least amount of money to pay fees are the ones that are forking them over. It's crazy. And yes, we all voluntarily engage in this exercise. But at the same time, there's such an enormous war on cash that we're almost forced into it. And so that's going to bring me to sort of the final conclusion of this podcast. And if you are still listening, thank you very much for doing so. I do sincerely appreciate it. Please be sure to drop me a note uh, letting me know that you what you think of the podcast and whether or not you enjoy it. And if you do or you don't, please let me know what about it is that you do or don't like. You can do so at facebook.com slash politics band or at Twitter. You can get, you can tweet at me at politics band. I'm going to leave you with this. We're facing two possible futures here. And the reason why I say that is because the war in cash is being, is very, very successful. It's been a very successful war. Cash is going to go away. It's just, it's too inconvenient. It's too imperfect. And at the end of the day, if the government wants cash to go away, it's going to go away. The advantages for getting rid of cash from this perspective of the government are immense because if cash is gone, that means that all of your money resides at a bank and it cannot reside anywhere else. All money must be in a bank. So if you make having large amounts of cash, say over $5,000 outside of a bank illegal, you know, now people are forced to put their money in banks. It accomplishes several things. Number one, Everything that is electronically in a bank is tracked and monitored, which means the IRS will always know exactly how much money you're making. They will always be able to easily perform audits based on banking records. And then should the government need or decide to seize your assets, they can do so very easily. And you will have nothing. You will have access to nothing. You will be flat 100% broke. So from the government standpoint, it offers control, monitoring, and blackmail. Hey, that's a really nice bank account. It'd be a shame if someone wants to take it. 
Maybe you ought to think about taking down that Twitter post. Maybe politics ban ought to think about taking down that podcast if you want to keep uh, keep that, you know, stupid $200 bank account going. Hey, man, you know, it's 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 it's, it's like it's, it has happened. It's had not happened to me, but I'm saying if you think that governments don't actively threaten people with their own money, I, I got a bridge in Alaska I'd like to sell you. However, okay, so if we were go to, if we were to go to a cashless society as it exists today, everything that you spend your money on will be monitored, scrutinized, judged. You will not be able to hide from the IRS. The IRS can seize your assets at any time and the government will be able to fully blackmail you with your own money. Or if we have a future a cashless future of cryptocurrency, where everybody is their own bank, where nobody's money can be taken with from them without their permission, where transactions cannot be denied, where corporations are not taking fees and taking their own cuts with every single transaction, where the transactions are semi-anonymous, and I say semi, there's you know there's not a whole lot of anonymity right now. At least with cryptocurrency, you have some aspects of individual freedom and individual responsibility that still allow you some control over your own money. Whereas the other future, it's no longer your money. It's it's the government's money until they say that it's not. And the very, like, property rights are one of the strongest fundamental foundations of our way of life. And your labor is property. No one has the right to force you to labor against your will, and no one has the right to deprive you of compensation for your labor. And so you can understand how powerful it is if you were able to control the value exchange for your labor, if you were able to track it, control it, use it for blackmail, you would have immense amounts of power over the average American citizen. Whereas cryptocurrency represents true freedom. It represents a break from the current from the current system and essentially puts much of the banking industry out of business. Banks as we understand them would change tremendously. We would still have a need for banks. There are still going to be some people who don't want to keep their currency in their own wallet. But the nature of banks would would change dramatically. It would change the whole business model would have to change in order for it to function properly. So it's up to us to decide what that future might be. And while, yes, the price of Bitcoin is continuing to plummet, and while some people are using this as an opportunity to, I don't know, to dance on the corpse of Bitcoin, even though it's been done hundreds of times before, my point is is that this technology is not going away. In fact, it is sorely, sorely needed. We need cryptocurrency more than we ever possibly thought that we did. So I encourage you to do your research. I encourage you to get involved. I want you to become part of these communities. I want you to start taking control of the things in your life that you can take control of. And this is one place that you can do that. I'm not going to tell you what to buy. I'm not going to tell you how much to buy. I'm just going to tell you, read about it. Educate yourself about it. And really dig deep into your own political philosophy. And I don't know if if you're like me, this kind of stuff fits like a lost puzzle piece into my own political philosophy. It fits in line with how I view everything else. I really wish I would have 
known more about Bitcoin years ago. I would have invested in it heavily then. I'd be, but I mean, I may not be here right now. I may have been off and I may have been like a, in a beach in Tahiti or, you know, maybe not Tahiti because right now here it's not too good there, but <laughs> maybe in like Bora Bora, someplace like that. You know, I would have been doing something other than this podcast. And who knows? You know, I mean, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And I do appreciate you all listening out there. And this won't be the last time I talk about cryptocurrency. So if you found some of this boring or maybe if you found some of this interesting, just a, just a heads up. But I do appreciate you all listening today and continuing to be part of the podcast. Thank you very much for your time today. And I hope you have a great week and we will talk to you next week.